would uh, speak now through your word to us. Just come and light on our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Acts 19, verse, verses 11 through 22. We read it last week, but I'm going to read it again really quickly. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil, evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say in the name of of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. We pointed out last week that these guys did not have a relational connection with the Lord. They were just sort of mimicking or copying what Paul was doing. And there's an issue there. Uh, Verse 14, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Mm -mm -mm. And verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number of who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together burned them pu- and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in, this, and in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So we know that there was a deep, powerful change because they... Money was involved. When they gave up their money, you know that they've been changed. Uh, verse 21, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So Paul's going around doing these things. And uh, there is a verbal proclamation of the gospel. There's a verbal confrontation of the message of the gospel in people's hearts, and obviously it's having an effect. But there's also a, a power encounter happening here, um, and we see that in this passage. And last week we looked at this passage, and we used the principles discussed in it as an impetus to looking at the issues of sickness and healing and demonic activity, and how does God respond to them, how do we respond to them, and We're not breaking this down verse by verse, but we are using it as a springboard to speak about these issues or discuss these these issues. And we said last week that sometimes our theology needs healing, that that our own thinking about God seems to kind of hold us back from experiencing the power and the abundant life that he wants for us. And we asked the question, what sets our message apart? What makes it different? What validates it uh, apart from all the other messages out there, all the rest out there? Um, Is there power in our message? Is there power in the Holy Spirit and, and life with Christ, right? Because words and ideas and good moral teaching do have power. They change lives, but they are limited in power in some senses. And we 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 said last week that we we serve a living, active God who cares about and intercedes with the physical nature of the universe. That he he actually interacts with us. Right? God heals and delivers. God has power to speak into our lives. And we identified four theological roadblocks last week to our view of God's interactive nature in the physical world. And last week we talked about the idea of sanctification through sickness. And we 
talked through that. Today we're going to look at divine determinism. Uh, next week will be faith for the faith formula, and then the week after is the secular worldview. And so, uh, let me begin by a little quote. There was a pastor in Beverly Hills uh, in response to a Times article on the theological problems of suffering, uh, wrote this. He said, I feel compelled to affirm that any view of God which denies that he controls all events makes the idea of God irrelevant. The real question is not why does God allow suffering, but why does God show mercy at all? That's actually a good question. God loves some of us, and he does not love others in the same way. That is why there is suffering for some and salvation for others. Hmm. I have a few problems with that statement. Um, you know, it, 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 first of all, it's just dealing with the idea of salvation and suffering, kind of suggesting that non-Christians suffer, Christians don't. I, well, I think Christians do suffer, and I think we're promised suffering in the Scriptures. So there's a problem there. But it's also like, it, you know, there, it's funny. Like any lie come, kind of comes with some truth wrapped around it, right? So it's easier to swallow. It's like the coating on the pill. And, and it really doesn't grasp it doesn't embody or, you know, hold the, the heart of God in it, in that attitude, does it? There's something awry about it. Um, at, at the least, when we say that God controls all events, then we also say that he decrees pain and comfort, uh, you know, wherever they are found. Divine determinism that God controls and orchestrates all events makes prayer for healing both futile and irrelevant. Let me say that twice. Divine determinism, the idea that God controls and orchestrates every single event makes prayer for healing both futile and irrelevant. Futile because if God has decreed sickness, then there's nothing that we can do about it. And then it's irrelevant since if he has decreed healing, then he's going to do it with or without me, without, with or without my prayers. doesn't matter if I pray or not. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that it doesn't even matter if you pray, that it won't make a difference? Many of us pray over the sick like this. We say, well, if it pleases you, Lord, right? Or if it be your will. Have you ever felt that such prayers, such statements in our prayer life betray our doubt as to what God really wants for a person that we're praying over? I might be splitting hairs with the assessment of those statements, but I think that we have to say that there is some truth there. That when we pray, we often pray with some doubt, don't we? Not that we can be fully assured of the results of our prayers, but deep down we doubt really what God wants for a person standing in front of us as we pray for them. Questions always seem to help us think through things, so let me ask one. What if I was told by some guy that he was deliberately going to infect my daughter with the AIDS virus because he felt that it would be good for her character, that it would make her stronger? At the very least, I would resent him, but I would probably kill him when he came to do it, right? I wouldn't allow that to happen. That's not what I want from my daughter. 
Sometimes our unspoken theology says to us that God's doing these things to us, that it's his will. Which seems to fly directly in the face of the, 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 the image of the God of the Bible that I know, right? That thinking very much may create resentment and even hatred towards God over time, especially when things come up in life. Russell Dix, another pastor, uh, observes, he said, if you believe as traditional, traditional Christianity has taught that God is sovereign. Now, I, I don't think he's using the correct word here, and I'll explain why in a minute. But uh, that God is sovereign, that is to say that he personally and with careful foresight determines the birth, the health, the handicap, or freedom from handicap of every baby. That he sends the illnesses, that he determines the major events of each person's life then resentment towards God in some form or another is inevitable. Now, I think he mixes the concepts of sovereignty and determinism in that quote. I I, I do understand what he's saying. I, I, I get his point. However, it does help to separate those two terms out. And, you know, God has a sovereign right to rule in the world. We know that. that. I think that we can see that from Scripture. But I don't think that he's deterministic in every little detail of life. Many people who use the terminology of sovereignty unwittingly, in my opinion, seem to be speaking more about determinism than they are about sovereignty, right? If I woke up in the middle of the night, as I often have when my kids were little and uh, one of my children had a fever and was throwing up and all that kind of stuff, what, was my, what would be my first reaction or what was my first reaction on those nights? Well, firstly, I prayed. As a Christian person, I pray right away, but I also get medicine and I might call the doctor if, if it was that bad and all that kind of stuff. And if, if I, as a father, uh, if I'm that concerned and I'm rightly convinced that my child is better off healthy then why do I question the will of God in this matter? You know, neither prayer nor medical attention is 100% guaranteed to heal or bring healing in somebody's life, but that doesn't mean that we should question God's intention or God's desire or God's heart in these matters, right? It just means living in attention. And at times the church has even done this with the concept of evangelism. But the issue of evangelism, we would never say right now as modern evangelicals that we are not called to go and make disciples of all nations. We know the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. We remember that was what Jesus told us, his last command, our first concern. We, are, we send people out, you know, we, we support missions, we're doing that for the, the party, right, you saw Vinny organized all this silent auction so we can get some stuff going on over in Lebanon and Syria, right? We, we are about that. Yet evangelism, if you don't understand Christian history, evangelism has, evangelism has been a recent development for much of modern Christianity, and even now, there, there, there have been times in our past, and are not, not so long ago in our past, that, and even now in some churches where they don't see that evangelism is their responsibility. William Carey, if you know the name, 
when he was asking his board or whatever you stand in front of his church board or whatever it was, I forget exactly who it was, but these elders, so to speak, he was talking to them and saying that he wanted to go to India to evangelize uh, those in India that don't know the gospel. And he was told very certainly that um, if God wanted to save India, he would do it without William Carey's help. I think the guy said, sit down, you're an enthusiast, <laughs> right? You're an enthusiast, right? Be quiet. If God wants to heal those or, or save those heathen, he'll do it without your help and my help. That was the, the attitude. And thank God William Carey didn't listen. He didn't listen. And he was, he was unique because nobody was going and doing that at the time, right? He was quoted as saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That was his attitude and his way of life. And that's a good mantra, I think, right? The reason there's been so much drive towards modern missions in this day and age is largely due to people like William Carey. We, we, we call him the father of modern missions because he rebirthed missions for us, right? A man who didn't view his role in uh, God's kingdom as irrelevant or futile, Right? Well, God will do it without your help and my help, right? That was irrelevant and futile, right? He was a man who didn't grow despairing. He was a man who didn't uh, act passive in his faith. He went. He did, right? And in the same way, many of us have this divine deterministic view of prayer for the sick as unnecessary. Because in this thinking, God's caused sickness. And if he wants to heal it, he'll do it without our intervention. Divine determinism breeds despair and passivity. It fosters a hostility towards God because God's either uh, viewed as uncaring or aloof or even sadistic, right? When the Bible speaks of sovereignty, it doesn't mean to me that it doesn't mean that God predetermines and controls every single event in history. Peter said, you stiff-necked people, You are just like your fathers. You always, what? Resist the Holy Spirit, right? Acts chapter seven. In other words, we can resist the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can resist the call of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to move in a certain area and we resist and what happens? It doesn't happen in that circumstance. I can resist the Holy Spirit. I've apologized to God because I've foregone opportunities when he's called me to do something very clearly. Now, does that mean that God's overall will has been thwarted? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does show us that that there's a correlation between God working and our obedience, our response to him. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus laments the frustration of God's will by his people. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, the people that God sent, right? And you stone those, to, uh, those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together, but you were not willing. You were not willing. In Mark 6, 5, the evangelist reports Jesus himself was prevented from doing God's will or working miracles in his own hometown specifically because of his neighbor's resistance. This all tells us something very clear, that human choice is an issue. 
That when we choose not to follow or we choose to be disobedient to what God is calling us to, God's will is not done in a certain instance. For some reason, well, I think I know the reason and we'll get to that in a minute, but God has chosen to work through his people. God has chosen to work through his people. And if this is true, then obedience and trust in an open relationship with God's spirit is of utmost importance in our spiritual journey with him. We've got to be listening. We've got to be reading the word. We've got to be following. We've got to be answering. We've got to be active in our faith. If in God's sovereignty, there will come a day when his will is done in heaven and on earth entirely. I believe that wholeheartedly. It'll be fully accomplished, right? There will come that day. But that day has not yet come. We're still living in the days of the already. The kingdom has already come, but the kingdom has not yet fully come, right? We're in the in that in-between time of history. We stand in that time before the second coming of Christ, when the kingdom of God is fully established. And at this point in history, some people and a significant number of angels oppose God's will. Sometimes his will is opposed unwittingly even by God's people because, like we said last week, there may be a cowardice to face new truth. There may be a laziness content with half-truth. And there may be an arrogance which thinks it knows all truth, which was what that first man I quoted was like. Right? Right? We've got to realize that some things are accidents. Some come in a line of successive events which make them inevitable and some are the aftermath of bad choices by humankind or even of angels. If you don't understand how bad choices lead to bad situations, just go and watch the series Lost. Remember that series? How many people watch that? A lot. A lot have watched it. It was a good series. It's crazy. It was wacky, right? Many people gave up watching since they never got any answers and you just got more questions and you got more confused, right? But it's clear much of what happened to them was out of their control, either due to evil forces around them or something going on or bad choices on their part. People are left with more questions than answers when watching the series, but we're all convinced that the right choices should be made no matter the confusion, that good choices in community would bring about a better life for them. For instance, instead of thinking, God determines every little flinch and step in my life, what if I looked at it differently? What if I viewed my life as if I were living in this giant field? The world is a giant field for me, right? And it's, it's a field that is fenced in by the love and the grace of God. And in this fenced-in field, I, can be, I can't be separated from, the, from, from God's love in Christ, that, that God accepts me by grace, that I'm, I am solidly in Christ, that there's no way I can lose my salvation and all that stuff. And, and I know in that field that God wants what's best for me. He wants what's life-giving for me. And in this field, I'm free to make choices and I'm free to, in, in relationship with God, I can learn obedience to his law while, I, while I'm under his grace, that I can make mistakes and that I can learn and, and change and transform and all that stuff. And sometimes I make good choices and sometimes I make bad choices, right? And in this field, there are also enemies around me 
because we're in the, already in the not yet, right? And, and, and there are enemies who want to do me harm. There are enemies that want to trip me up. There are enemies who want to wound me because we are in a spiritual battle. And in the future, those outside evil forces will be eradicated. They will be dealt with in, in finality. And I will live under God's good and perfect will forever. I believe that. So when Christians are, uh, use terminology like God permits or God allows in reference to sickness, it seems like an inadequate attempt to give an answer to something that we just don't fully understand. We don't like not understanding, especially as Americans. We're smart folks, right? But just because I don't understand doesn't mean that I have to refrain from acting on who I know God to be from the scriptures, right? To say God allows is to say that I am devoid of responsibility in my actions, And my choices, and it denies that there are evil forces at work in the world that I can't even understand. What we want is to have our theology tied up in a neat little package with a bow on it, right? And and, and in that, if we have that all set straight, then all the responsibility lies in the hands of God. We want to have our God figured out as a mathematical equation, A plus B equals C, and then we can use him like a magic wand anywhere at any time. We're uncomfortable. We're embarrassed with the unknown. We are agitated with the gray areas of relationship with him. We're, we're, we, we, uh, we're, we're, we're embarrassed by a God who chooses to act out of love and for some reason, limit himself in certain ways to choose to work through us. And the answer lies somewhere in that realm of understanding the issue of the already and the not yet. How we live in that tension that God doesn't, or God won't control all things due to his goodness and his love for us. And that there's hope for the future no matter what happens now. That for some reason, he has chosen to do his work through us in relationship with him. Now, do I understand that fully? No, I'd be lying if I said I did. I don't understand it fully. But at the least, I have solace in knowing something about the character of God now as I walk this tension out. And an ultimate hope for the future of all this stuff being settled, right? Simply because God doesn't will illness or predestine it doesn't mean he no longer accomplishes his will despite it or even through it. We should be clear as, as believers. Satan's will is to cripple, to harm, to hinder, to bring death. God's will is to heal and to bring life. Even if it doesn't happen in every situation. It's not my, it's not my business for the results, right? Remember, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. He died again. He's not living somewhere in New Jersey, running in a 7-Eleven or driving a truck or selling iPhones on the corner. He died again. But he was raised to life by Jesus. That's an interesting thought. 
So when we read passages like Acts chapter 9, which deal with healing and demonic activity, we have an internal struggle. We don't understand, since our theology may not be open to new truth, it might be satisfied with half-truth, and it may be arrogantly saying that we know everything already. Healing and spiritual power just don't often fit our view of God. It could be that unknowingly, we are resisting the Holy Spirit, that our theology needs healing before our bodies can be. In other words, God wants us to experience him for who he really is, not based on our faulty notions of who he is. And if we're honest, the nature of not understanding all this forces us into reliance on who he is. It forces us to act in trust and not what we expect or we want him to be, but who he actually is. Kim and I went to a vineyard pastor's meeting about 10 years ago in the very beginning of this church plant. And while there, we uh, began worshiping with all the other pastors in the room. It was a wonderful experience. We didn't know anybody except for one guy who invited us. And as usual, during those meetings, people would break out and they would start praying over people. They would hear something, a, a word from the Lord about somebody, and they would just go over them and say, can I pray for you? And they would usually share what they think that they're hearing from the Lord in a humble way, you know, like, I think I'm hearing this. Can I pray this over you? And all that kind of stuff. And then they would begin to pray over people. And a man who had never met my wife and didn't know her at all approached her, and he asked her if he could pray for her. And before doing so, he stated that he thought thought he was hearing something from the Lord for Kim that day, and he proceeded to say things that I had been saying to my wife for 18 years. Now, that's very frustrating as a husband, but we all do it in this such as marriage, right? I could say something to my wife all day long, and then Mary could come along and say, Kim, did you ever think? And she'd be like, I've never heard that before, <laughs> right? And, and the, your, your spouse is over there like, oh, oh, what am I, chopped liver, right? But I, you know, despite my frustration... I was still very happy, right? (laughs) Following that, so he prayed over there, and following that, two other people who had not heard any of that came over to Kim, and they said the same things that they felt the Holy Spirit was saying to Kim, and it was spiritual healing. The Holy Spirit had spoken. That was a power encounter. That was a power encounter. And afterwards, Kim and I talked, and she said something pretty interesting. She said, I'm not used to this. I'm not used to this. I'm not used to hearing from the Holy Spirit. I'm not used to ministry like this. You know, up until now, I blamed it on my my past church experience and all that kind of stuff. I thought that, you know, I was just entering a new church culture, that we just kind of acted a little differently in this church culture and all that stuff. But now I can see that I can't blame shift anymore. I can't blame it on all that, that God wants to speak to me. God wants to heal me, that, that he wants me to also minister in this way to other people. And she didn't feel guilty about her past, about all the years that she had wasted. You know, like you could feel that way, right? She didn't feel guilty about that, but she just saw a new door opening for her to experience the power available to her in Christ, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
If I've not been seen, if I've not seen or I've not experienced healing, if I've not seen or experienced these things, it usually isn't the fault of God. Most likely it's me who has been resisting the Spirit. Or that there are evil forces at work which I don't understand, and I really do need you to pray me through it. But if it is me who stands in the way, that's not something I need to feel guilty about. I don't need to feel guilty about that. It's just another step in my spiritual formation. It's another step in my understanding the love of my Father more deeply. It calls me to faithful action in my life from an, to an exciting life of faith. It's a matter of whether you want to look back in shame on all your past faulty thinking or you just want to look forward and hope and seeing more clearly on who God is and what he can do through you and in you. We should rejoice in the fact that there's more to be learned. There's always more to be learned in the life of Christ and experienced in our life with Christ. Always. God desires healing in all ways and suffering for the name of Christ is expected to be endured joyfully. But those are two separate things like we said last week. God's sovereignty doesn't extend to decreeing sickness and death. Those are results of the fall. They were never part of God's plan. You don't see that in the Garden of Eden before the fall. If we act as a divine determinist, thinking God decrees all things good and bad, it breeds a sense of futility and irrelevancy. We must make no mistake about it. We are in a spiritual war, right? We must remember that we stand in the already and not yet. There are still opposing forces outside of me and sometimes even within me which fight against the desire of God in these areas, who struggle against God, right? Military strategists agree, and I've used this before, but I love this example. In World War II, when the Allied forces landed on the beach at Normandy, that that secured ultimate victory for them. That although the war continued on for quite some time after that, that was the day the war was won. There were still skirmishes and battles to be fought. Some won, some lost, you know, but the war was won at Normandy. It broke the back of the enemy right there. Normandy, for the Christian, is the cross and the resurrection of Christ. It is the message of Jesus. It is what he did. That was a power encounter in the spiritual realm. And that moment secured victory for God over evil. But we're still fighting out the few small battles until the final ending of the war. We are at war with spiritual forces which oppose God, but that doesn't negate God's goodness or that he's all-powerful or that he's all-loving. It's not so much that God allows these things as much as it is that creation opposes God. There's, the, the war is won. We have ultimate victory. The war is won, but we're still being, the war is still being fought at the same time. For God to step in and control every single little detail would negate his character of love. It would negate his character of love and his character of goodness. However, it doesn't negate his desire and his love for all creation. And for some reason, he's chosen to work through his people as he works in them, 
right? You are important. You are important. You aren't futile. You aren't irrelevant. And I hope the Schwamburgers take that to Columbus and do some of that in Columbus. We need not despair. We need not grow passive. We need to engage in the battle. With a smile on our face, by the way. With hope in our hearts. God will use both of us, all of us, if we can learn to try not to figure it all out, not to get caught in the weeds and the thicket of intellectualism and trying to like figure it out. You can't. You can't. Just act on what you know God to be. Right? That's all. Join the adventure. Right? Amen. Amen. Next week, we're going to look at uh, the next roadblock, which is the faith formula. You'll hear what that is next week. But sometimes our theology has got to be healed before our bodies can, maybe. I'm praying that we're going to learn to stand not only on the past work of Christ, the message of the gospel, which is vitally important, right? But also to act and live in the current power of the Holy Spirit in our church even more so than we do now, right? And in this issue of sickness and healing, let's use William Carey's quote, let's expect great things from God and let's attempt great things for God. Amen? Amen. Let me uh, pray for us. Father, we thank you that your spirit is here. We thank you that you uh, encounter and challenge and beat back the, the forces of evil in this world that you bring freedom and love and uh, glory to your people, that the end result of this is your kingdom reign, your sovereignty over the world, over all of creation, and that that is a place that we can stretch and run and feel free in. And we know that we can experience, and we do experience some of that now. We just pray that we would be we would not be holding you back, that we would be answering, that we would be engaging. And when you call us to do something, that we wouldn't be fearful. And we know, we, we, we admit to you even before, before it happens that we are going to make our mistakes. We're going to shy away. We're going to get fearful. We're going to get anxious about these things. And we're not going to do it every time. But we thank you for your grace and your mercy that guides us and keeps us moving forward. We pray that you would just train your people, love your people, and give us opportunity to pray for others and care for others and have power encounters that validate the message of the gospel in people's lives. We pray for a great year in these ways. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.